Our scripture reading for this morning comes to us from Matthew 25. I encourage you to open your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 25, verses 31. We'll be looking at verses 31 to 46. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Or if you have a pew Bible, page 831. This is the word of the Lord. Receive it as such. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we are confronted by these words of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we're confronted by these words from the Son of Man, may we find deep and rich comfort within them, knowing, Lord, what you have promised, and knowing, Lord, that you are faithful to do it. And so, Lord, be with us, open your word, and open our hearts to receive the same. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, these words of our Lord come to us at the very end of what has sometimes been called the Olivet Discourse, or Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of Olives. This discourse began in the previous chapter in Matthew 24 and continues until now. And in this discourse... Jesus has been asked basically two questions by his disciples near the end of his ministry. 
and they're found in Matthew 24, verse 3. When will the temple be destroyed, and what will be the sign of Christ's coming and of the end of the age? Very important questions. And throughout this discourse, Jesus has answered these two basic questions. But he's also said a lot more. Jesus has revealed what the future of the church will look like as it awaits the end of the age, Christ's return. And what he has said about the future of the church, frankly, doesn't look that good. In no uncertain terms, he says that the church, as it awaits Christ's coming, as it awaits the end of this age, the church will be persecuted. The enemies of God's people will increase, and that there will be tribulation. The people of God will be opposed. The people of God will suffer. This is not what the disciples were expecting to hear, nor is this what they probably wanted to hear. And this isn't what we might want to hear, but it's true from Jesus' mouth. And as Jesus tells the disciples about this future, he also adds on to it and adds what he expects the church to do as it waits in the midst of the opposition it's going to face. They are to await his return, to look out for him. They are to keep their lamps alight. They are to be patient. They are to be patient. They are to be fruitful. Even when they're bitterly opposed, they are to be patient. And as he speaks these words to the disciples, he speaks these words to us as church. And so, beloved, we have some predictions. The church will suffer and be oppressed and opposed. And here's a commandment. Be patient. Would we describe this as encouraging? Is this particularly uplifting? As we look around us, we see that these predictions have come true. Everyone, everywhere around the world, as we see, even where the church is its most dynamic, where it's its most growing, it's oppressed, it's opposed, it's persecuted. And even in our own country now, society becomes less and less familiar with the Christian message. We become more and more misunderstood. And we see it's harder and harder to be vocal, firm, in our Christian faith. A heavy task has, laid up, has been laid upon us. Be patient. And a heavy future has been laid in front of us. It's not encouraging. And Jesus seems to have thought so as well because he gives us our text. And with the predictions and the commands, the angles towards comfort. And he gives us our text. A wonderful promise. Jesus will return in judgment. Jesus will return in judgment. The waiting, the struggling, the pains, the mockings that we as Christians might even face now can be borne. We can be patient because the shepherd king will exalt his flock to give the disciples strength to do their mission, to give the church now strength to be patient. Christ gives this message. And so our Lord's words encourages us with our present struggles by proclaiming to us the shepherd king will exalt his flock, which we will see by noting two things about the shepherd king in our text. First, his glory. Second, his judgment. And so first, his glory. And our text begins this way. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory 
and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus begins these words by describing himself on that final day of judgment. And he does so by beginning with his favorite title for himself, Son of Man. And when he uses this title, he's calling back to ancient prophecies made hundreds of years earlier that now are fulfilled in him. And so all the way back in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, the, Daniel, the prophet Daniel prophesied. He spoke in the time when Israel was in exile with the Babylonians, and he prophesied in that time of the future that Jesus has now come to fulfill. Daniel and Daniel 7 prophesied of four beasts who is revealed in that prophecy, represent four kings. And the fourth of these beasts is the most fearsome. It's the most destructive. And Daniel's hard to understand because it's so complicated, but what is clear is that this fourth beast represents the whole that opposes the people of God. Daniel says it that this beast made war with the saints and prevailed over them. This beast represents in total all that oppresses, poses, persecutes the people of God. But when this beast is at its worst, God intervenes. He judges. God, called by Daniel, the Ancient of Days, takes his seat on his glorious throne in a glorious court to judge this beast. And we're told that this beast is killed. That his body is destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. The Lord will judge and will avenge his people rescuing them. But then Daniel immediately sees the vision in the same way, the same event, but from a slightly different angle. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite title, how he refers to himself, came like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You can hear the Lord's prayer in that, which we just recited. Daniel sees the same event from a different angle, and now he sees that this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. He's involved with the judgment. The judgment of a world empire will happen and the kingdom will be given to the son of man and so son of man is that end times king who stands victorious glorious and mighty who rules over all people's nations and languages he's david's better son he is the true seed of abraham this is the kingdom of god that jesus throughout matthew has been pointing the disciples to constantly and daniel points out that he's glorious this son of man, that he is glorious. Jesus says this about himself. Jesus will take his throne, what our text calls his glorious throne. Then he will be surrounded by angels, and he will be openly recognized and acknowledged by all people. The kingdom, the dominion taken away from all that opposes the gospel, all that persecutes believers, and reclaimed by Jesus Christ. He came for you and I, and he will come again for you and I, and he will be openly recognized by all. Congregation, this is the Christ you serve, this Son of Man, who will be glorious, who will be high and mighty. This is the Christ we're called to be patient for. 
He's not a weak Christ. He's not a Christ who can't do anything. He is the Christ who comes with angels and glory, with a throne. This is the Christ you are called to be patient for. One who is very much able to save. Not a Christ to be ashamed of, but a Christ we can put our trust in. But as Jesus is using this title for himself, there's a bit of an irony here. There's a bit of an irony. See, as Jesus is saying this, as he calls himself the Son of Man, plans are already being set in place to put him to death. Already set in place. Look at the verses right after our passage in Matthew 26. Jesus prophesies that the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That Son of Man. The Daniel 7 Son of Man. Crucified. And the chief priests and the elders plot together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. This Jesus, soon to die, this Jesus who so far has been rejected, this Jesus who has been mocked says these things. That he will be glorious. And the irony is this, the image of the Son of Man Jesus speaks about looks nothing like the Son of Man Matthew's shown us so far. Far from all nations, all peoples, all languages serving him, acknowledging him. Jesus has been rejected by his own. In fact, if we think about it, the Jesus we see in the Gospels, for most of the Gospels, looks a lot like the church. Misunderstood, rejected, spoken to horribly, persecuted. Jesus looks a lot like his church as it awaits his return, as it awaits a glory to be revealed, but not seen at present, like Jesus did as he went to the cross. And so in theology, we call this the state of Christ's humiliation. Jesus came the first time without glory and meekness and humility for the salvation of his people. He died. He was mocked, scorned, so that we might be saved. As a son, he learned obedience through pain and opposition. He was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. His kingdom was mocked. It was rejected for our salvation. Jesus had no glory for our salvation to pay for our sins. And in this way, he modeled our task, bearing the cross, suffering reproach. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He walked as a pilgrim seeking a better city, a heavenly one. This is the task the church is called to, to wait and to watch in the midst of opposition. Our Lord did it once, looking for the exaltation to be received by God, awaiting a reward. And that was Jesus' first coming. The state of humiliation is followed by the state of exaltation. In his first coming, Christ accomplished our salvation and began to apply. But in his second when the Son of Man comes, surrounded by his angels, that is when his glory is seen. That is when he is exalted. In his second coming, he fully applies our salvation, where his glory is seen by all. The Son of Man will return. And before, he came with no glory, literally stripped of all clothes, to hang naked on a cross. He will be clothed then, with glory indescribable. No longer alone, cut off from the land of the living, he will come as our text says with all the angels. Note the word, all 
The angels, all the angels who Revelation 4 tells us sing to him on the throne, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come, who surround him on his throne of glory, where he has the right to judge over all. In a wonderful public display, the king of glory will re-enter the world that mocked him, that misunderstood him, this time with the sword of judgment, with a mighty scepter and his rule invisible to the world now. It's so very true. We'll be seen by all. And before him will be gathered all the nations. All the nations. That means everyone who ever lived. That means everyone from far off to near will be gathered before him. And his glory will be admitted by all. The Pharisees, who just now are plotting to kill Jesus, will acknowledge him to be who he said he was. Pilate, who ignored his innocence, will be forced to acknowledge Nero will be forced to acknowledge it. The worst persecutors the church has ever faced will acknowledge it. They will all see the glory of the Son of Man. This is essential for us to grasp because it assures us that Christ wins in the end. You know, it's hard to promote a failed cause. It's hard to stay in the game when you think that you've already lost. Our passage promises, without a doubt, without a shred of wavering, that Jesus wins in the end. And it's as simple as that. He will win. He will be glorified. Everything we as Christians have lost to stand up for the truth, whether it's friends, whether it's influence, whether it's money, all of that hasn't and won't be in vain because Christ wins. Whatever the Lord has called upon us in the past or now to part with as part of bearing our cross will be rewarded because Christ will win. Nothing can prevent that. Nothing our government can do can prevent that. Nothing foreign governments can do can prevent that. Nothing false religion can do can prevent that. Jesus will win. So that means there's no reason to have a defeatist mindset. Christ will win. We don't have to worry about that. It's not ultimately up to us. And if it was up to us, frankly, wouldn't we mess it up? The Great Commission will succeed. The glory of the Lord, the knowledge of the Lord will spread across the earth like water spreads across the oceans. Do not worry. Jesus will win. And when Christ wins, he will give his flock, us, total victory exalting them, judging them in all nations before his throne, as we see in our second point. Now, turn our attention again to the court assembled before Christ on the last day. Our text says that all nations will be gathered before him. And among those nations, the king makes a division. He separates them into two. Two people, one on one hand and the on the other. On his right hand, there are sheep. On his left hand, there are goats. The image of the sheep is repeatedly used throughout Scripture to refer to the people of God. And as we read further in the passage, that is clear that this is who these people are. Jesus says to the sheep, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. In other words, the sheep treated Christ well. They honored him. They respected him. They saw him. They acknowledged him. Even when he had no glory. 
But the sheep are surprised to hear that they actually did this because they've never seen the glorious king in front of them, like how he describes himself. Yet Jesus says to them that they truly did these things because, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. By brothers, he's speaking of Christians, the other sheep. So we have a principle. The king identifies with the subjects. The shepherd identifies with his sheep. How someone treats the sheep is taken personally by the shepherd. On the other hand, of the king, there are the goats. The image of goats doesn't have a common meaning in the Bible, but in this passage, it's clear who these people are. The king tells the people, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Notice, the goats aren't being condemned for what they have done. More than that, they're being condemned for what they haven't done. They haven't blessed the king or submitted to the shepherd. These are not Christians. And again, these goats, like the sheep, they don't know what the king's talking about because they've, again, never seen any king like this. Surely, if they saw a glorious king sitting on this throne of glory, surrounded by angels, like how he's describing himself, they would have done these things. But the king says, truly I say to you, you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. The least of these being the sheep on Christ's right hand, his brothers. In other words, these people aren't just Christian. These people aren't just people who've never believed in Christ. These are people who saw Christians in need, saw the brothers and sisters of the king, and they refused to help them. These are the people Jesus has warned his disciples about all through the discourse. These are the false Christs. These are the false messiahs. These are those who oppose these are the people Jesus have warned him about. These are the church's persecutors. The shepherd king is angry. The principle is the same. How someone treats the sheep is taken personally by the shepherd. To the sheep, the king says this, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The king exalts his humble flock. As we have walked as he has walked the road of patience and persecution himself, his flock has. And as he has been exalted by the Father, now he exalts his flock with him. His kingdom is their kingdom. His glory, which we just looked at, is now their glory with him. Everything we saw of Jesus' glory becomes ours. Beloved, do you believe it? Do you believe that the Son of Man will give us this? Jesus' victory is our victory. He walked the same path of the cross before us. What we experience now is what he experienced on the earth while he walked. Do you believe this? Will you be patient in this life, knowing that you will receive this glory? That when the Son of Man comes, it is for you. So that you would be exalted. So that you would be lifted up. So that your persecutions would be avenged. And this means two things for the sheep. Two things for us. First, it means that the sufferings of the sheep will be gone. Remember again how Jesus describes the sheep. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They aren't clothed. This isn't just misfortune being described here. This is neglect. This is abuse. 
But look also at the end of our passage. What do they receive? Eternal life. The fullness of salvation. Full life. Greater than Adam ever had walking in the garden with the Lord. What he lost when he sinned. What he lost that opportunity to be with the Lord. Eternal life. To partake of the divine nature. As Second Peter says. Their abuse is removed. Their suffering is gone. A new life has been given to them, will be given to them, supernatural life. Immortality, swallowing up mortality and all the pains that afflict it. The second thing this means for the sheep has to do with their innocence. You know, there's something that has always fascinated me, me about this passage, just how stark the difference is between the sheep and the goats. Look at the sheep and the goats again. Look at the differences. There is nothing good ascribed to the goats. Nothing good. Only negative. And yet when you look at the sheep, you see that it's the reverse. Nothing bad is ascribed to them. Nothing bad at all. It's almost as though these sheep are sinless. It's almost as though they've been perfectly faithful. And when we look at ourselves, do we fit that description? When we look at ourselves and we consider ourselves as the sheep of God, are we the sheep? Pure, white, holy, having walked faithfully? Well, we just confessed our sins. Of course we're not. In and of ourselves, these are washed sheep. These are sheep who have been clean. These are sheep who have been justified. All of our sins washed away in Christ. All that remains in God's sight is the righteous deeds of Christ done by His Spirit, done by the patience He has worked in them by His Holy Spirit. The Lord sees that. The perfection of a sheep because of what he's done. Cleansing them from all ill. Cleansing them from all sin. Cleansing them from all defects. And exalting his gifts in them. The sheep of God are shown to be entirely innocent. And their cause will be shown to be the very son of God's cause. All their sacrifice that they've made in their life to be patient will be rewarded. One thing, though, as we leave this passage that we would be wrong to not touch on is the role revenge plays in this passage and final judgment. Or the, perhaps the word vengeance might be a better word. The role vengeance plays. Again, Jesus is talking to the infant church about the future and about how the church will suffer. And he's giving a promise to them that is to comfort them. And the promise is, to put it starkly, your enemies will go to hell. Now that is a promise that can be very easily misused. It can be misused because we can think that God is a God who, desi- who delights in the pleasure, who delights and takes pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that isn't the case. He says otherwise in Ezekiel. He declares with equal force, though, that he hates sin and he hates sinners. The book of Psalms teaches that. And he will punish transgression. Part of the Lord's love for his flock is that he hates those who harm them. That the Lord is filled with a holy anger. This doesn't cause us then to be gleeful. This shouldn't cause us to rejoice. People are going to suffer hell because of how they have treated us. No, and we should never look at a promise like this and say, so-and-so in my life is going to really get it because of the way they treated me. That is not how we take a promise from the Lord like this. We take it humbly. 
knowing if but for the grace of God, so goes I. So would go I. If the Lord hadn't opened my eyes, I would be a ghost. That is how we receive it with grace, with joy, but with grace and with mercy. In fact, actually, a promise like this is an encouragement to evangelize. Because there are people out there who have woefully misunderstood the gospel of Christ and who speak against it, but they need to know the truth. They need to know the truth about what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. Part of being the patient people waiting for Christ's return that he commands us to be is to pray for these people, the people who harm us, the people who hurt us, our enemies even, our Lord teaches us to pray for them to bring them the gospel, even if we know that it might hurt us, even if it means more pain, more rejection, and more suffering. Will we be patient? Will we trust the Lord, knowing that we stand to inherit a kingdom, a glorious kingdom, when the Son of Man returns with the angels in his glory, when he sits on his glorious throne, and so, in closing, beloved congregation, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus has given a lot of bad news for the church, and we are very much living it. The church will be persecuted. It will be opposed. And we have seen that in so many ways across the world and even beginning in small ways here. And we have this task, be patient. The key to patience is to see what the Lord will do. Christ will win. The Son of Man will take his throne, and he will be made glorious. And he comes for us to make us glorious, to exalt us, to right every wrong, to put all of his enemies, our enemies, to flight. The shepherd king will exalt his flock, you and I. And so do not fret, little flock. It is the Father's goodwill to give to you the kingdom of God when he returns. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and Almighty Lord, we come to you in prayer, knowing, Lord, that you are the just judge, you are the righteous king, and you are the faithful shepherd of your flock. You will return, Lord, in judgment, and you will spare us because of Christ. Lord, we pray, work this faith in our hearts, grabbing this promise so that, Lord, we would be patient in adversity, patient in opposition, knowing what we stand to inherit, the crown of life, the throne of the kingdom with you in great glory when Jesus comes. And Lord, we pray that he would come soon to avenge us all, to give to us the full salvation he has worked for us on the cross so long ago. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.